Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On a secret path. The one that nobody knows. And I'm moving fast. On the path nobody knows. I'm a stranger. There's Gord Downey and uh, the Stranger song in tribute to the survivors of the residential schools. Chief Cadmus DeLorme joins us from Cowess's First Nation, and uh, we have the privilege of speaking with the chief uh, quite regularly on this program and really appreciate that opportunity, and uh, particularly just a couple of days since the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in this country. Chief DeLorme, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, would you assess for us, please, how you saw and how you felt the impact of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on Thursday. What did you? What sense did you have? Thanks, Roy. It's an opportunity to be on the show as as uh, as I invited. On on Thursday, Cows is hosted our National Day at where our Maryville Residential School once stood. There, Roy, our our young youth danced the powwow. That's one of our our means in our culture. Our young men sang our songs in powwow, and we danced. And, you know, one of the things that was spoken of is children of our grandparents looked out a window out of that school, and they were unable to do that. And so we danced for them. So, you know, back on Cowsis, the first day of Orange Shirt Day, our, our National Reconciliation Day, you know, it, it, it helped us in our healing as well. It was a beautiful day on Cowsis on that day. I'm so I'm so glad, and it's so important for us to hear this message from you. Uh, the The next question I have to ask you is, what's the response been from non-Indigenous Canadians to the to the to the determination to reach reconciliation? What What have you heard? What's What have you What What have you been exposed to? What have people said to you? The last five months have been tough on Canada. Uh, the Kamloops, the Maryville, the unmarked grave stories. I have learned so much of my own self and my Indigenous people in all of Canada and, and many proud Canadians. For Indigenous people, the unmarked graves is validation. Validation of the pain, the hurt, the mistrust, the anger that 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 carry because of the reality and truth that Indigenous people have with Canada. For non-Indigenous people, I have met so many in the last four to five months that have come up and or messaged me or, or just somehow got a message to say, you know what, my shield is down. I'm admitting I really don't know much about the truth between Indigenous people and Canada. I, I want more and so we're at a moment in our history in this country where we're kind of all resetting our compass just a little bit to make sure that reconciliation can happen. So that window is open, Roy. I'm so glad to hear that, uh, Chief DeLorme, because there's been a sense, I've had a sense that people want to uh, to know more. And I think the more you know, 
the more you're willing to engage and the more you're willing to engage, the more you're likely to reach, well, reconciliation, a sense of, uh, of, of communal direction. But are there identifiable markers along the way that we should reach, maybe annually, in Canada to uh, assess the progress or lack of progress which is being made uh, or and achieved? Are there markers we should be meeting? Thank you, Roy. We cannot move to reconciliation until we accept the truth as Canadians. There is only one truth, and it is tough, Roy. It's going to be uncomfortable conversations. It's going to be many discussions of, of what the truth is. And, you know, I'll take this time and really quick to explain to you what intergenerational trauma means from the legacy of residential school and that is a common term we're going to start hearing more and more is intergenerational trauma. So really quickly, Roy, I'll explain what that means from my perspective. It is what you call vertical lineage and horizontal survival. In this country, because we're a developed country, because we're a free country to be who we want, vertical lineage is, should be a norm. Grandma teaches mom, mom teaches daughter, daughter teaches granddaughter. Well, this is what happened in my lineage. My three generation ago, great, great, great grandmother, her name was Mary. She didn't attend residential school. Mary had Gracie, my great grandmother, who was born in 19, great, great grandmother was born in 1870. She didn't attend residential school. Gracie had Maggie, my great grandmother. She attended the Round Lake Industrial Residential School in 1906. Maggie should have got her teachings from her grandma and mom, but she didn't because she went into horizontal survival mode. The sexual, physical, mental abuse was real. Maggie had ever my grandmother, second generation in my maternal side to attend residential school. Evelyn should have got her grandma and mom teachings, but she didn't. She went into horizontal survival mode in residential school. Evelyn had my mother, Charlotte. Charlotte should have got her teachings from her grandma and mom, but she didn't. She wanted Bible. Then here in Roy, I never attended a residential school. My mother did what she could to figure out what a mom's role is because she didn't really have those teachings because her mom and her grandma were still trying to recover from their horizontal survival mode. And so my mom did what she could to raise me. And now today, my daughter is getting my mother's vertical teachings. But unfortunately, many Indigenous people in this country are still on that horizontal intergenerational. And we don't judge, Roy. We don't try and come up with our solutions. We just must stand beside them, invest in them, and help them heal because it was Canadian policy that created this horizontal survival mode. That is intergenerational trauma. Chief Delore, my listening to what you just said uh, to all of us allows me to better understand the significance and the importance of the ceremony you had at Cowessis with your young people this past Thursday on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We do have a responsibility um, to, to reach the objective, and we cannot allow ourselves at any time to be derailed and uh, you're, a, you're an eloquent voice, Chief DeLorme, and I thank you so much for the time you spend with us. Much appreciated. Thank you, Roy. All the best to you, sir. 
we haven't at this point. Now, that's not to say that we won't have discussions about that this week or as we move forward if we're not able to find a peak uh, in these numbers and in our hospitalization numbers. The voice of Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who will be joining us uh, tomorrow on the program, talking about uh, what he was referencing there. And that is the issue of uh, COVID patients and numbers of cases in the province of Saskatchewan, which the Canadian Medical Association is saying that both in Alberta and Saskatchewan is at crisis levels. Uh, There are other issues that go along with the COVID uh, reality, of course, the uh, issue of other medical um, procedures being postponed or canceled. Organ transplants have been delayed in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So how bad is it? How much worse might things become without intervention? What does the Canadian Medical Association want done? Joining us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Dr. Catherine Smart. She's the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thank you for coming back. You were with us last weekend, and we were talking about the procedures that have been cancelled and postponed because of COVID and what was necessary, and now we're talking about the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan and what they're facing. How are you doing? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me back. Yeah, would you just describe the situation from your perspective as president of the CMA and what you're hearing from your members in Alberta and Saskatchewan as far as COVID infections at present in both numbers and severity in the province is concerned. Absolutely. You know, we are hearing daily from physicians in both provinces about just how desperate things have become. You know, several physicians are, are really wanting the public to understand that in many ways the health care systems there have already collapsed. They're only at this point in time able to provide acute care services for people that have life and limb surgery, meaning they need to be operated on within 72 hours. Every other type of surgery has been cancelled. Um, you know, you referred to some of that as you in your opening. Their ICUs, you know, they've added a lot of surge beds, which has over doubled the capacity and the number of people that can receive critical care. But that means every other area of the hospital that would normally be doing other things is trying to care for patients with COVID. These people are incredibly sick. We've seen data over the last two weeks that shows people in both those provinces are dying at three times the rate of people with COVID throughout the rest of the country. Um, So it's really, really dire. And this is on the backdrop of healthcare professionals who are incredibly burnt out. They have been working so hard now for months. Uh, Nurses with you know, tons of mandated overtime, which means you might have worked 12 hours and then you're told, no, you can't go home because we don't have a nurse to replace you. You have to come back tomorrow. You can't have a day off. This, this, That's what that means. So that just contributes to the ongoing burnout and people are starting to leave the health workforce. Um, and I think really what we're hearing is people are really afraid that if the government doesn't take some significant action in terms of public health mitigation, um, they're going to be next step is going to be actually denying some people any care. Um, so I think it's really hit the rock bottom. Um, and what we're really hoping is that the two leaders of those two provinces start actually listening to the people that are inside the house that is indeed burning down. So it's interesting you talk about care and uh, access to care. And I would imagine when it comes to life and limb surgery, as you said, or life and limb procedures, if they're not done, I mean, if they're not life and limb today and they're not being taken care of, they'll become life and limb tomorrow, right? 
Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's that is one thing for sure that people's yeah. illness or problem can get worse. The yeah. other piece of that is some of these procedures are diagnostic procedures, right? So do you have cancer? Well, now right. we don't know for two or three months. So now your cancer has spread. You right. know, you have a tumor that's pushing on something and now you, one of your organs fails because it wasn't removed in time. I mean, these are the types of things that we're, we're talking about. So there's no question we will see ongoing health consequences for people because of these uh, inability to provide the care they need in the timeline they would have normally received it. Dr. Smart, when you talk about availability of care, of, of medical care, and, and we're talking about maximum capacity in, uh, in, in hospital space and, and uh, healthcare personnel availability, but there's also the issue, and it's one, the question of ethics, and we talked about it a bit in the last hour, and people get angry at me. I'm not the one who's suggesting this take place, but I know the debates are taking place. They're certainly taking place in the southern United States. Will triaging potentially get to the point where a person who's vaccinated will perhaps receive quicker care than the person who isn't vaccinated? I know it's a terribly difficult issue for healthcare professionals to address, but are we getting to that point? I think, you know, our medical ethics really dictate to us in the profession that we treat everybody the same. You know, we don't judge people and offer them care based on their pre-existing status or why they come into our facility. Um, Because you can imagine the slippery slope that that would be in terms of who's deserving of care. Um, But I think what's more distressing is, you know, if we're at the point where we're talking about having to triage care, then why aren't we just taking action? Why aren't we putting in place the public health strategies that we know work. Yes, it's inconvenient. People don't like it. But it's we're talking about, you know, two or four weeks of someone's life versus someone who's going to lose their life or lose their wellness. Um, so to me, it, it seems, you know, it's incredible to think that we're considering this type of thing without actually just taking the action that we know would avoid that. What, what are you asking the, uh, the premiers to do? We're really asking for a multi-pronged approach. Um, you know, the first thing is really utilizing any public health strategies that can be used. And we're starting to slowly see these things happening, right? Slowly coming around to the idea of a vaccine certificate, you know, slowly starting to decrease some numbers in terms of gathering sizes, bringing in some masking, bringing back some trace test, isolate for cases. But what we really need is a full commitment to all of those things. And the other thing that's been really being talked about and called for from the healthcare professionals in those provinces is the circuit breaker, where you really try to limit people's interactions, closing down non-essential services for a short period of time to stop this exponential rise in COVID so that things can come back to a a bit of a better baseline, and then we can move forward from there. So that's one part of it. The second part of it is, of course, increasing vaccination. We know that those two provinces have the lowest rates of vaccination, and that's a problem. Um, And we need more vaccine mandates to encourage people to get vaccinated at certain segments where people are working with vulnerable populations to ensure that they're vaccinated. But that's going to help us in the long term. That's not going to help us here in the next four four to eight weeks. So we still need those other actions. And then the third thing we're recommending is that they consider now potentially moving some patients to other provinces that are doing better, like Ontario, who's offered to help to offload some of this capacity so they're not at such a critical level um, and consider mobilizing healthcare providers from other areas to come and help so that some of their workforce can actually get a break. Mandatory vaccinations? 
What do you think? We're definitely calling for that in cases like, for example, healthcare. We called for that in August. We'd like, we do think that anyone who works in healthcare should be vaccinated. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. examples, particularly in places like long-term care, where healthcare providers have brought COVID into the facility. So, you know, when people are vulnerable, they deserve to be protected. I think we're going to hear more talk about the government bringing in mandates for their employees, and that's happening in some places. We know the federal government's doing that. Um, and then there's also well, they're talking the about education doing it. system. The yeah. federal government's talking about doing it. They're talking. But I, I hear exactly what you're saying. The action. Yeah. When you look at Alberta and Saskatchewan now, and we're going to be speaking with Premier Mo tomorrow, when you look at Alberta and Saskatchewan today, when you look at the other provinces, how close are they to the difficulty Alberta and Saskatchewan are in? Are there, is, it, is it a consistent picture across the country, or does it vary by region, by province? I think it really varies. You know, right now, those two provinces are really struggling. We're also, unfortunately, seeing a large outbreak right now in the Northwest Territories. Um, that, that's happening. And then, of course, because it's a small population, when you have an outbreak per capita, the number of cases is very high. And that's been very stressful for people there because, of course, they have quite limited resources being a small territory. And then we're starting to see some uptick in New Brunswick as, as well with uh, rising cases and, and more action being taken as also. Um, but, the you know, the places I think right now that are really on fire are Alberta and Saskatchewan because of the impact we're seeing in the health system and the fact that it's really brought all of their acute care facilities down in terms of their ability to actually deliver care to anybody else. Um, and it's not, there's no signs of this letting up, right? The, the peak is continuing to rise. And that's really the concern is Delta is so efficient at spreading that once it takes hold in some of these areas where vaccination rates are low, it just has, you know, innumerable number of people it can spread through. Um, and that's what's happening right now in those places. So the fundamental answer, if I'm looking for one fundamental action to take, one, uh, as the layperson, I hear you saying that most significance, significant is to get the vaccination numbers up significantly and i'm talking about long term here now short term maybe as well but but long term the idea the need is to get the vaccination numbers up we've been hearing that for over a year and there was great enthusiasm for the arrival of the vaccines for the majority of the population and the majority of the population is vaccinated but what's the number that we need to reach is there such a number we are estimating that given that now Delta is the predominant variant, that likely at least 85 to 90 percent of the population needs to be vaccinated to really have an opportunity for herd immunity. And that will likely not be possible until children can be vaccinated, younger children, because they are 15 percent of the population. But we also know that that's around the corner, right? Pfizer's released the data set yesterday to Health Canada. Um, and we're optimistic that vaccines will be approved in that younger age group soon. And that's going to then open up a whole nother group of Canadians that will be eligible for vaccination. And that will really help us drive up towards that higher number that we need to really see the impact from vaccine. Do you think people are hearing you? Gen- generally across the country, are. do you think people, people are listening? I do. Like, I think over, you know, right now we're standing about 80% of eligible Canadians broadly speaking, have been vaccinated. It's higher in some areas, lower in others. So most people are listening. The challenge, I think, is how do we get to the people who aren't hearing the message? How do we address their concerns? And how do we encourage them to hear the accurate information so that they can feel comfortable choosing vaccinations? So what I see in the way of emails fairly regularly during the week, I'll see it a couple of times a day, 
is this, that in the interest of public safety, vaccination must be mandatory, and failure to agree to vaccination may result in heavy fines. Now, I know that's political, that's not your territory, but that's what I see and that's what I hear, and that's what I'm going to ask my uh, my callers to uh, to express their thoughts on in just a moment. But when I say that, what's your reaction? I don't think you're likely going to see the government make vaccination mandatory for citizens. I think that will be unlikely. But what they can do is mandate what you're allowed to do if you're not vaccinated. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, where we have the ability to... Um, you know, create safe spaces for people who are vaccinated by only being able to access certain services if you've been vaccinated. And that over time is going to create much safer public spaces. Yeah, they certainly found in France when uh, the president of France said, uh, as of, I think it was sometime in September, they were not going to allow anybody who was unvaccinated into specific public areas like malls. They had a 3.7 million a person uptick in vaccination in a matter of days. Dr. Smart, thank you very much for coming back on the program. Appreciate talking to you always. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Peter Nygaard has agreed to be extradited to the United States to face nine charges, including sex trafficking. He's also facing charges by Toronto police, six counts of sexual assault, and three of forcible confinement, And the charges relate to alleged incidents in the late 80s and mid-2000s. So what's going on as far as this particular case is concerned? And uh, who gets precedence? Does the Toronto police get precedence as far as uh, their charges are concerned? Or the United States, where Nargaard has agreed to be extradited? Ari Goldkind joins us, Toronto, Toronto criminal lawyer and media pundit. How are you, Ari? Excellent, Roy. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. What takes precedence, uh, the Toronto charge or the U.S.? Well, that's a great question, and a lot of people were talking about that the other day. And the answer is it really depends on the Minister of Justice, and there's probably going to be some discussions with Mr. Nygaard's legal team. So my sense is it is not a fait accompli yet. In most circumstances, you would think that the Canadian charges come first, but I'm not so sure that's going to be the case. But again, the third step of extradition is the Minister of Justice. That will be discussed with the uh, attorneys on behalf of the government, um, but certainly the U.S. case, and we've seen this with our Kelly, Weinstein, Cosby, uh, even uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who uh, is a part of the Nygaard story, and I'll explain why. These are all things that suggest to me the U.S. matter may go first. Okay, so before we talk about uh, Maxwell and how that all, how she ties uh, into, into Nygaard, uh, to talk to us about what it is that he faces as far as the charges in the United States are concerned and the charges in, in Canada are concerned. The man's in his 80s. Yeah, and that's a really important part of the story. Now, again, most people won't care because as soon as you get charged with a Me Too-like offense, everybody presumes you guilty and the courtroom of public opinion sort of does you in. But he is 80 years old. And so where does Maxwell fit in? I'll get to that second. In the United States, he faces essentially two for lack of going into legally sets of charges. The first is racketeering. Now, that's a word that most people don't know, Roy. It's a word that really applies to Tony Soprano, mafia-like cases, and it's done to sort of find a conspiracy or a scheme. And why is the racketeering charge so difficult to defend against? Uh, R. Kelly went down on it last week. What does R. Kelly have to do with Tony Soprano? Nothing. 
What it does is it allows U.S. prosecutors to ignore statutes of limitations. And what it essentially does is it says, look, there is somebody at the top of the food chain, in this case, Nygaard. He has underlings help recruit women, bring women from malls, get all these women to his pamper parties. And that conspiracy or scheme-like charge allows the prosecution to be much, much easier to prove. So the charges there are racketeering and trafficking in persons. And in the Canada, they are the more standard charges of sex assault and forcible confinement, because in Canada, Roy, we don't have a racketeering charge. So his lawyers the other day allowed him to be extradited only on the trafficking. That's what they agreed to. The racketeering is subject to discussion in the third stage of extradition. Okay, and Ghislaine Maxwell, I've heard her first name pronounced so many different ways. Ghislaine or Ghislaine Maxwell, whatever her correct pronunciation is. The sex trafficking, is, is that where she ties in, uh, or at least the situation becomes similar? Yeah, and so what? why that's such an important part of the story is because Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein, and all these other people tied into Me Too, they were rotting in jail in the, what's called the Manhattan Detention Center. Weinstein as well, R. Kelly as well. Now you say, what does that matter? Because one of the things that came up the other day is that as part of this agreement, I think there's been some discussion between U.S. and Canadian authorities and Nygaard's legal team that when Nygaard surrenders, as he does for the extradition, assuming he gets sent and the third stage is met, he will not be housed in the hellhole known as the Manhattan Detention Center. And when you mentioned he's 80 years old, and he's likely to die in jail. That's how this tale is going to end, in my view, absent me being surprised. There seems to be some discussion that was publicly uh, offered the other day that one of the conditions, again, is he will not end up in that undignified hellhole, which as much as people like the fact that these people end there, these are people that are presumed innocent. These are pretrial detention. And by the way, Roy, Peter Nygaard, in my view, should have gotten bail on the extradition request. He didn't because of a whole series of things that, to me, are rotten. And that's one week after we all had Canadians' noses thumbed in the two Michaels and the Huawei uh, billionaire daughter of the founder who was living in a $10 million home in Vancouver thumbing her nose at Canadians. Yeah. So the Supreme Court of Canada has, as you just uh, mentioned, been involved in Nygaard's situation, denying his request to challenge the decisions by two lower courts and denying him, essentially, I guess, by extension, denying him bail. But his, his, his circumstances in Winnipeg are not terrible, if you're thinking about prison realities. He's alone in a cell made for three. He has a television and he has a phone. So would that have been a negotiated situation? I, I think so, and I think probably something to do with, God forbid, something happens to him in jail like Epstein. I can't really comment on that. You know, I'm not really persuaded that he's in sort of club fed in pretrial dis, uh, uh, detention. My right. view, Roy, and again, you know I'm not a bleeding heart. Trust me. But the idea that he didn't get bail at 80 when he was offering round-the-clock monitoring, a full security team, no phone, no cell service, because the judge said he'll tamper with witnesses— these are all things that, in my view, should have allowed him to be safely released. And when you look at the kind of people, Roy, that often do get released on very significant, expensive bails, whether it be a shooter, an alleged cop killer, the idea that Peter Nygaard didn't get bail on the extradition request bothers me as a criminal defense lawyer. 
But I appreciate that 92.8% of people listening probably think that allegations are enough to get people to rot in jail. I don't ascribe to that theory. So what are you expecting uh, going forward, Ari? How does this situation play itself out? Yeah, I, I think, Roy, this is actually a much easier answer. I think in the United States, the part of the story that people don't really know, and it makes it fascinating, and if you don't believe me, take my word and Google the words Lewis Bacon. And I mean that seriously, Lewis Bacon. This all started uh, over a decade ago where the two billionaires on a tiny island in the Bahamas, that's Peter Nygaard and Lewis Bacon, had a dispute over a construction project. These were two billionaires having a blank contest. I won't fill in that word, Roy, for obvious reasons. And Lewis Bacon spent, spent millions of dollars trying to dredge up evidence, get people to get statements against Nygaard. He essentially built the case. If the defense team for uh, Nygaard in the United States can show that this is all made up, which I'm not sure they can do, these pamper parties are notorious. Peter Nygaard was notorious for allegedly being a creep and having all sorts of interests that were not kosher, uh, so to speak. Peter Nygaard has a very difficult road to hold in the United States when the Manhattan District Attorney, called the Southern District of New York, sets its eyes on somebody. They almost never lose, and it'll, the racketeering charge, or even the trafficking charge, Roy, allows them to call so many people to say he's a rotten person. I don't see him running the gauntlet or you know, running the board in the U.S., I think he will die in jail, and that leaves aside the Toronto charges, which he will face at some point. Okay. Barry, good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. You know, the new James Bond movie is O-U-T. It's out. Uh, not playing everywhere, but it is going to, and it is no time to die. Also, Daniel Craig's last foray as 007, as I understand it, a film was, uh, was, was filmed, film was filmed in uh, 2019, just before COVID. And so where does No Time to Die fit into the Bond films lineup? And why has 007 proven to be such a multi-generational hit? Professor Robert Thompson joins us. He's the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, generally considered the world's foremost expert on pop culture. Bob, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time. Have you seen it? I haven't. We don't get to see it till the 8th. Oh, really? I would have thought they would have screened it at your house. <laughs> yeah, well, you'd have thought, <laughs> wouldn't you? Well, I would, that really, exactly. I was, that, it, that sounds like uh, it's been in the, uh, the Bond uh, music box since the very beginning. I, it, it really hits that feeling. Doesn't it? It really, really, that's the first thing I thought. That's a Bond song, if there ever was a Bond song. How ready is the world for for No Time to Die? Well, if I'm counting correctly, this is uh, either the longest we've been uh, without a Bond film or the second the longest. License to Kill, I think, was 1989, and Goldeneye was 95. Uh, and uh, the last Bond film uh, we saw was, what, Spectre, 2015. Is that what um, it was? Was it Spectre? Uh, we've been yeah. waiting for, uh, uh, for a long time. And, uh, of course, this is, as you pointed out, Daniel Craig's uh, uh, last one. He, so far, uh, has uh, been responsible for $3.2 billion of the $6.9 billion that this franchise has, uh, has generated. You know, I've always said that Sean Connery... There's been a Canadian-British director before. Oh, yeah? First one from the U.S., if I'm not mistaken. 
Oh, no kidding. I've always said that Sean Connery was my favorite James Bond because he was the first. But I have to say I'm modifying that position a little bit because just because I've enjoyed Daniel Craig's portrayal of 007 so much. I, I have, too. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the, the whole favorite Bond thing oftentimes doesn't have much as much to do with the actual objective quality of the performance as it does have to do with how old you are and who was the Bond you grew up with. Um, I grew up with uh, uh, Roger Moore as uh, uh, James Bond. I've always had a really soft spot in my heart for Roger Moore, but not many people would agree that he's the you know best Bond ever, though he did it for a whole bunch of movies. I thought George Lazenby was the best. Yeah, well, he only had one <laughs> chance for that one. <laughs> that didn't work out so well. Uh, I agree with you, though. I yeah. think uh, Daniel Craig, and uh, we've seen him, what, in four? We're about to see uh, uh, the fifth. Um, uh, I think he's really kind of inhabited that uh, 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 that character. And now, when you know, when you just sort of all of a sudden think of James Bond, I think most people you think of James Bond, you think of Sean Connery. Um, I think Daniel Craig is beginning to kind of uh, uh, move in to our consciousness when yeah. it comes to actually being the Bond. Why is he quitting? Has he said why no, he's I not mean, going to do it? Part of it has. He's done five of these, been doing them since uh, 1906. I don't know if I maybe there is a reason out there that uh, uh, I'm not aware of. But uh, you know, I think it's there's a, uh, a sense of one of the reasons they've been able to keep this franchise going for uh, uh, what nearly 60 years now, right? Uh, That's right. Four was the first one. Or yeah. 63, 62, Doctor 62, No, maybe 62. Doctor No, right? Was it Doctor No? Yeah, I think 62 was the uh, uh, very first one. Yeah, Dr. No. Um, so uh, very close to um, uh, uh, a solid 60 years. And I think a lot of that is the fact that they do move these uh, 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 characters uh, uh, so they don't get too old. They don't get too uh, – uh, you know, it, it's like refreshing um, you know, we now use the word reboot uh, all the time. Uh, uh, the, 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 the James Bond franchise was uh, doing reboots long before uh, the word reboot was ever. Uh, yeah, and they've had to adjust the character. He's had to become more uh, 21st century than uh, than certainly Sean Connery was, um, or, or Roger Moore, and, or, or some of the others. I can't even remember the others now. Right. You know, I'm amazed that they, uh, well, and I think Daniel Craig will, at five, he'll be uh, tied with Sean Connery, and I think he'll, uh, I think only Roger Moore did more than uh, more than that. Who are the Roger others? Moore who who are the others, Bob? Let's see. It goes uh, in order. I should know this off the top of my head. Connery, Lazenby, Lazenby, and then Connery uh, did another one. So actually, he did uh, 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 he did six. Roger Moore did a whole bunch. Timothy Dalton, Pierce Brosnan. Daniel Craig, I think I got them all. Yeah, I didn't like Timothy Dalton. But my favorite Bond movie, Never Say Never. Yeah, well, that's a pretty good candidate for... Yeah, uh, I always thought that was a great, great film. Uh, so do Bond fans generically have their favorite 007? If you put a, a room of, a fill a room of James Bond fans, would there be uh, would there be a number one choice? 
Well, I think it would depend on which James Bond fans you put out there. I don't know if someone yeah. has done a statistically sound analysis, and then you'd have to define what constituted a James Bond fan. Someone who'd seen all the movies, someone who yeah. uh, uh, you know collected uh, uh, the memorabilia, uh, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, right. It does seem, though, that most people uh, uh, have a favorite, but I'm not sure if there's uh, if we could. Uh, You know, Rotten Tomatoes tries to put stuff by looking at what all the critics say. I suppose you could do it that way. uh, Where does does James Bond, where does 007 fit into the general pop culture reality? Well, I think if you, I mean, uh, I think certainly he is one of the uh, characters, fictional characters in the, you know, age of movies and uh, uh, modern pop culture that has penetrated the culture, not only nationally, but globally uh, as well. So not only in his country of origin, but I think uh, across the board and, and really in so many ways, especially during the Cold War era. Uh, James Bond really came to be uh, to symbolize something much larger uh, than that uh, uh, character itself. I try to get a sense of this with my uh, students who are probably average age of about, I don't know, 19 or 20, probably uh, about 20. Um, And I get less of the kind of universal knowledge of uh, James Bond. I think if if you talk to someone my age, I'm 62, uh, whether you're a Bond fan or not, fan or not, you know James Bond, and you've probably seen a number of the uh, movies, even if you're only a casual uh, movie guy. Well, I I tell you, Bob, I can't wait to see No Time to Die, and uh, we'll have to compare notes. Thank you so much for the time. It's always so much fun. Thank you, Roy. All the best. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.